welcome to Retro Game Audio. My name's Patrick. And I'm Steve. And uh, what are we talking about today, Steve? Well, today we're talking about lost NES music. Uh, that's music that was hidden, cut, or otherwise unused in NES and Famicom games. Yes, we're going to be talking about music that you probably never got to hear when sitting behind your NES. Um, it's the sort of stuff you might have heard, but only if you looked up rips of these soundtracks uh, you know, and listened to them exhaustively. So, we have this episode broken up into five different categories, which are cut off early, lost in translation, prototype alternatives, unused, and lastly, unreleased. And bear in mind, this episode is sort of like a show and tell. Um, We don't actually have an exhaustive list of every example for every category. Uh, We can assume there's just some stuff we don't know about yet. Yeah, exactly. And and some of these categories also uh, have quite a bit of content uh, to pick from. So it'd be too much to fit into one episode, clearly. Yeah. And, and nonetheless, I think we did a good job of finding some really cool examples to share. So, you know, I'm really excited about that. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we can get started. Uh, let's begin our first category. This is, again, music that got cut off early. Uh, Steve, what do we mean by cut off early? Well, it, it's just as it sounds. I mean, these aren't tracks of music that are totally unused or unheard. These are all examples of songs that can be found in-game. The only problem is that they have more content to them uh, than what the game allows you to hear, because the game will transition to a new scene or a new part or you know something else happens in the game that kind of makes it so that you don't hear the full track. Um, to start, here's an example from the first Double Dragon. Uh, let's listen to the level transition theme as it sounds in-game. So it just briefly plays the repetitive groove before jumping right into the level theme, as you can hear here. Um, But here's what it sounds like if you listen to the complete riff from the NSF file. So I remember when I first heard that, like it was kind of like this no way moment for me. Um, like after becoming so familiar with the music from you know having played the game over and over, hearing that tune, hearing the full version of it was just a big surprise. You know, it just went against what I was familiar with. No, it's funny too because like it kind of think thinking about the process and how like a lot of tracks were written and and whatnot. I mean, I, we'd probably have to talk to the composer, but, you know, was it one of these cases where a bunch of tracks were written and this was just, you know, put in this certain slot and then kind of put in the game, you know what I mean? Like, was this really written to be the transitional track or is it just written as a track that just so happened to be put there? You know, like, those are the kinds of questions I always have when this kind of stuff happens. Right. We don't know if it's like miscommunication between the mm-hmm. composer and the programmers or, you know, they just, some tunes, like you said, some tunes might've been written without knowing really how it's supposed to fit into the game yet. Um, uh, and I mean, I know that it's like a really small size, like a lot of these tracks, like they're not like huge in terms of like taking up the cart, but right. it, it's also kind of dirty. It's not like, you know, it's not clean coding, I guess, if you have like stuff that you're not using. So you know, mean, they weren't thinking of remove it. Yeah. I can sort of picture a middle ground where they could have had like in the mission select screen, like it tells you what the upcoming level is. It could have been like press start or press A to begin. Mm-hmm. And like that loop could have then played 
its full version, like letting you decide when the level starts. And uh, that is true. So it's like maybe that's what they had envisioned and just didn't do it that way. It's always interesting because like, you know, and one of the things that you read over and over and over again is how um, a lot of these games were kind of rushed or uh, done very quickly Mm -hmm. uh, in in such a way because, you know, just churning them out, the more games you made, the more money you made. That was kind of the the idea. So it's always funny when like you find these like that's clearly a little mistaken here. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is that. Um, but you wonder how much of it was just like, Hey, we got to get this game out. I don't care if it, if it doesn't loop, <laughs> right, <laughs> you know right. I mean? something like that, you know? Yeah. They might've just not cared too. Right. Yeah. So, uh, moving forward, we have a couple examples from Mega Man three. Uh, here's what we get to hear of the Wily map screen. Normally. And here's the full version of that track. that sounds familiar the unheard part of that track was actually our last episode's name that game uh i thought it'd be fun to pick something from a very well-known soundtrack you know everyone loves the Mega Man soundtracks um but you know to see if it'd still be easily recognizable or not since obviously it requires looking up the soundtrack apart from gameplay so um i didn't know if that would be like something that would kind of trick listeners uh or if it would be easily recognizable yeah and uh, like uh in our old last episode it was recognized by kevin burke good job kevin yeah. By the way, that track also makes an appearance in the Wily Wars collection on the Sega Genesis. That's right. And I completely forgot that existed when I was initially drafting this episode. You had to remind me of that. Um, th- that's like a Mega Man 1 through 3 collection that was ported to the Sega Genesis, right? Yeah. And I checked earlier. Uh, their version of the Wily map theme only uses the repeating section of what was heard in-game on the NES version. So either they used the gameplay as a reference or they just wanted it to be that after the fact, I guess. I, it's so funny. I, as the more I've listened to the Wily Wars soundtrack, I originally hated it, but there's some choices in there that I really like. Yeah, no, Sorry. I actually feel kind of the same way about it. Like I, the first time I heard it, I was like, "Oh, this is a total violation." It doesn't sound like how it should. I didn't like it. But mm-hmm. hearing it more recently, getting these samples, it's kind of like, "Oh, the the Sega Genesis versions aren't that bad." Yeah, there's some thoughtful stuff in there. Yeah. So there's also Proto Man's whistle theme from the epilogue of Mega Man Three. Uh, let's take a listen to what that uh, the game allowed you to hear before transitions into the ending credits, which is a great track in itself. Thank you. 
here's the whole ending section of that track. Wait, so Steve, uh, how does the Wily Wars handle that? Well, it's interesting. It's kind of the same thing again. It's a loop that seems to be inspired by the in-game NES version yet again. Just uh, a kind of lingering on that last moment instead of going further and actually doing that last end section. Yeah, it loops that last ending thing until this. And I think you can actually sit on that screen for a little bit, too, I think. I, I, I just recently played through the whole game on Genesis. It was actually pretty fun. Oh, and something I just learned about that track that's pretty interesting. Um, I was speaking with Frank Schifaldi on Twitter, and he said that the Mega Man Legacy Collection uh, version does let you get to hear the full version of the Proto Man's track. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so that's Which is great. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so there's another neat thing with that whistle track, too. Uh, whenever you run into Proto Man earlier in the game, you hear this. But if you pause the game while you're entering a screen that Proto-Man spawns into, it'll tease out the full version of that track. Um, but unfortunately, it's not actually the full ending theme. It's not like you can just hear the ending epilogue thing by pressing start there. But it just it, the track it pulls from is essentially a copy-paste uh, of the introduction to that full track. So it's basically twice as long as what you get to hear if you don't awkwardly pause the game. And here's what that sounds like. Moving on to another Mega Man title, which is actually one of my favorites. Uh, there's also the title screen music to Mega Man 4, which is, well, it's kind of funny that something right at the beginning of the game would have one of these interruption problems.
So it actually kind of cuts off in time, musically speaking. So it's like right at the end of a measure. So I think it's not as egregious of a cutoff because it doesn't obviously sound like it was interrupted. But I mean, it's still kind of odd because it's it's not a cutscene that needs to get to like a new part of the game. It's just the title screen. And what's happening is it cuts back to the introduction, um, which you didn't really need to do. So there is more to the track. And if they just let it sit on the title screen longer before looping back to the intro, you would get to hear the full thing. Uh, which sounds like this. So it's interesting. I, I when we were talking about this, I had kind of a theory maybe because like when you play Mega Man Four, you have the option between choosing I think like Game Start and Password, and some games would let you I guess like select between the two, and that might prolong the time that the title screen plays. You know, like there's certain games that would just keep running the title screen and not go to the intro if you're if it feels that you're selecting between options. So uh, Patrick and I actually just uh, tried this out. And no, it automatically forces you back to the intro, even if you're like choosing between the two options. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's not very patient, I guess. Exactly. So I guess that's debunked. You do get to hear a little bit more of the title track in the PAL version, which is mm-hmm. not a surprise that a, a PAL version of the game would have different timing kind of issues. Yeah. Um, but it's still not the whole thing. I think it just adds maybe a, a measure or two or something like that. So. It, it's funny, too, because like we're leading this off. We start with Double Dragon, but there's like a bunch of versions for Mega Man. Um, there's probably more, right? Like. I think I, th- I think that's all of the ones from Mega Man. Um, mm-hmm. In Mega Man 2, though, this is kind of neat to show. Uh, they did a good job timing the transition from the intro to the title screen. Uh, it has that pitch bend that connects the two tracks. But you can actually pull out the intro track and listen to the rest of that downwards pitch bend. Uh, it's only an extra 1.4 seconds longer, but it's it's funny to hear it. <laughs> it seems like the composer and the programmers were in better communication there, or at least they had better vision how the transition was going to work. But that's still that's still pretty funny. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Right, so do we have any more examples of tracks that cut off, preferably some that aren't Mega Man, I guess? <laughs> yeah, uh, we have <laughs> just a few more. Uh, this is stuff that I found and wrote down in an old forum post, like I think like almost eight years ago. Wow. Um, so thankfully that happens to, be, happens to still be up, because otherwise I would have never remembered these. Um, one of them is the introduction to Dash Galaxy and the Alien Asylum. <laughs> And I had another example. It's from a cutscene for Worm, Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I honestly have no idea what the context is. Like, my, my note says, like, this is a cutoff cutscene track. Um, but I tried looking up the gameplay footage, 
and there's a long play on YouTube. And I just, I tried going through the whole thing, like looking through all the cutscenes, and I, I couldn't find the track. Um, but so I'm just going to trust my old notes and assume this is in there somewhere. Maybe they didn't access it in that playthrough or whatever. Um, so here's the full version of that track, which is, uh, presumably only partially used in game. We should point out that Worm, Journey to the Center of the Earth, does have a sound test, though. So you can hear the whole track uh, there. Uh, but it's one of those hidden sound tests that require holding a combination of buttons or on the second controller at the title screen or whatever they had you do. Yeah. Oh, man, those are the best. <laughs> I, 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 it's so funny, though, because I remember as a kid, like, kind of, sorry, this is a little bit of a tangent. Mm-hmm. But I, every time there was a sound test, like if I got my Game Pro and it's like, oh, there's a sound test, that was like the first thing I did. Like I would go and I'd pick up the games and I, I'd, I'd go one by one in any game I had that was in Game Pro that was there that had like a sound test code or something. And I have to hope that like some of the guys who programmed some of this stuff back in the day who wanted you to sit there and listen to the sounds or something like that, or at least appreciated that we did <laughs> or something maybe. You know, I think I uh, discovered the sound test in a Famicom game uh, and mm-hmm. I don't remember what game it is. So I'm going to have to try and dig around, see if I can find it. I know I added it to Game Facts a long time ago, mm-hmm. um, but I was very proud of myself because it, <laughs> it was like uh, it was a sequel to some other Famicom only game. And that game had a sound test in it, the first game in the series. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's the type of thing where it's like a very specific button combination that you have to do at the title screen. And I just noticed that the second game in the series, like, was programmed very similarly. It had, like, a, a similar looking title screen and, like, it mm-hmm. booted up in the same kind of way. And I was just like, why don't I try copying it from the first game? And, uh, you know, at the time, the game had no cheats or anything posted on GameFAQs, and it just, it worked. So I was like, oh my god, I'm the I'm maybe the first person to know about this uh, sound test. Uh, and I can't even remember what game it was to, so obviously it wasn't that big of a deal, but... Um, it's kind I, of a big deal, yeah. <laughs> I, I'll do some digging, and if I find it, I'll post it in the uh, SoundCloud comments to this episode, so... So, I guess to wrap up this section, it's the last one we could think of, and, and I guess it's the ending sequence to Strider. Yeah, and it's another Capcom game again. Oh, boy. Right, which makes me wonder if we should be looking more closely at the rest of the Capcom NES library for these. Um, Anyways, this track normally jumps to the ending credits around a minute and 15 seconds in, but the full-length track is closer to two minutes long. So, uh, yeah, let's just give the full track a listen.
So let's get started with our second category, Lost in Translation. In this category, we'll be talking about music that really wasn't unused. You know, this is the kind of music you can hear in-game, but only depending on your region. For example, let's listen to this tune from the original Castlevania. For Western audiences, this track might as well be considered unused. It's in the game's data, but there's no way to access it. Right, but as we said, it's not technically unused because it was included in the original uh, release for the Famicom Disk System. Uh, so if you had Castlevania on floppy disk for the Famicom, uh, then this is a track you're familiar with. In that version, you can't miss it. It's the name entry tune. It's kind of funny. Uh, despite this sort of odd, weird jingle that's likely unrecognizable to a lot of Castlevania fans, it wasn't considered too obscure for use in later series. Um, so Harmony of Dissonance for uh, GBA, Game Boy Advance, elaborated on this theme, calling it Name Entry 2K2. That use of that, like, of the, the Game Boy, uh, what's it called, wave channel to do that, like, real nasty bass uh, on GBA, that whole soundtrack is just, oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, a lot of people don't like that soundtrack because it it's, goes in the opposite direction. I think people were expecting at the time. They wanted more of, like, the modern high-end sound coming out of the Game Boy Advance. I mean, and they're wrong. That's sound- just wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that soundtrack is has, like, a dirtier, ugly Game Boy sound it, it's to it. So, it's so nice and ugly and it, it just brutal and like and it was purposely done like that there is like what's great if we ever did an episode on it there's interviews with the composer saying specifically why he did what he did so we we could definitely elaborate on that that's great um so super mario brothers 2 is another really good example for our lost in translation category um the super mario brothers 2 that we're all familiar with uh wasn't originally designed as a super mario brothers game uh, at all in japan yeah, this is because the real Super Mario Bros. 2 was another game that's very similar to Super Mario Bros. 1. It was basically the same engine and assets, but it had much, much harder level design. We know of this here as Lost Levels because it was later re-released for Super Mario All-Stars. Yeah. Um, but they skipped it all together on the NES here because they thought it was too similar to Super Mario Bros. 1 and too hard, in fact, uh, for the U.S. market to be interested. 
Yeah, so instead, uh, Nintendo already had another game called Yume Kojo Doki Doki Panic. And that game was simply edited to include Mario characters and themes uh, for release as Super Mario Bros. 2 here in the United States. So let's take a look at the original themes which were altered before coming stateside. Okay, so this is the original title screen introduction track. And the opening section isn't entirely unfamiliar since it uses the melody from the ending theme we're actually familiar with with the uh, U.S. version of Super Mario Bros. 2. If you were playing this on Famicom Disk System, that would be for side A, and it would play the, the you'd pop it in, it would load the game up, and it would play that theme, and then it plays kind of the end of that, indicating to you after it shows kind of a little introduction to flip the disc over, ah, and yes. so it's like this dramatic thing telling you to flip the disc over, basically. It kind of and the little cutscene at the beginning gives a little bit more context, uh, you know, uh, to the actual story, which is uh, kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing in here is we should all be familiar with the Star Power Up theme from Super Mario Bros. Two. Remember that they had to add this kind of stuff uh, to make the game feel more like Mario. Uh, So what Doki Doki Panic had instead uh, actually was this. Super Mario Bros. 2 also used the Mario 1 theme uh, when you enter the sort of dark world, you know, between the doors. And this is what Doki Doki Panic had for that. Um, So Doki Doki Panic also had two different ending tunes, uh, both of which differ from the single ending tune that Super Mario Bros. 2 had. And this is really crazy. I had no idea about this until just looking this up the other day. Um... Unlike Super Mario Bros. 2, you actually had to beat the game with getting all four characters through to the end. Like, in other words, if you made it to the last level with Mario and you switched to Toad, like, Toad wouldn't be in the last level. Toad would actually be all the way back. I mean, his equivalent character, of course, would be all the way back at the beginning of the game in Doki Doki Panic. Um, which is totally insane. That means you have to beat the game, like, four times to beat it. It was interesting, though, because uh, what's really nice about it is, one, because uh, I have Doki Doki Panic, um, it, there's a couple things that I've been trying to figure out. One, so the copy of the game I have, someone cleared the game. So mm-hmm. what, what happens is is that all you can actually complete and save when you do that. So you can complete the game with all the characters, and your progress is saved world by world. So it, it sounds tedious, but it would just mean that the, chal- the challenge is to beat it four different playing styles. You couldn't, like, rotate, but when you picked someone, that's, you know, the level you pick. So instead of having a screen where, like, someone puts their hand up because you selected them, uh, yes. it physically has a screen that maps out all four of the characters and their progress, and you can pick the levels based on that. So it was just – it was a little different. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how to actually erase the progress because – 
as according to my thing i've beaten the game just just <laughs> so uh, it's like, turn on your famicom disk system on and off like a bunch of times really rapidly oh Maybe. that sounds really good for the 30 year old <laughs> disc that's in there perfect yeah <laughs> uh yeah don't do that um <laughs> So anyways, this is the song that played when you've cleared the game with any of the uh, characters, but not all four yet. And when you finally get to the real ending, you'll hear an ending theme that sounds very similar to what we had on the NES. The key difference is the second half of the track, which has happier, upbeat music instead of the slower dream sequence theme we got in the U.S. Contra is another interesting example. Contra was originally a bit more advanced on the Famicom than it was on the NES. Uh, it had a better mapper, which I believe was the VRC2, uh, mm-hmm, which, I think so. which allowed it to be bigger and have more content. Uh, stuff that got cut from the NES version, of course. Yeah, the Famicom version is overall very similar to what we have. Like you said, it has some of the better graphics, a little more content, though. Um, it had an introduction, a level map between stages like Castlevania 1, some animated background art, and the ending of the game had a little extra scene that shows you getting into a helicopter and taking off. Uh, yeah, so here's the introduction to Contra uh, that we didn't get to hear. There's also a different jingle when you beat the final boss. In the US version, instead of that, it just plays the same jingle for every boss, which is kind of lame, I guess. (laughs) 
which that to me almost seems like a mistake actually it's like i you know i don't know for sure but i understand that they have to cut content due to the u.s cartridge lacking the vrc2 um but i'd be surprised if that one little jingle set things over the edge because uh, you know the music data is actually not that big um, yeah and like if you bear in mind that the final boss's death uh sequence isn't different in any way like it's not like they had a different cutscene for it it's that part of the game's identical um so to me it seems like they just kind of screwed up and used the generic boss defeated theme by accident it's like they couldn't just you know fit that one little tune well i mean it's hard to say uh, these unused tracks of music are still found in the nsf rip of the u.s version so it's not that they had to save space by cutting the music itself uh, the bigger issue for saving space was likely the extra graphics and the intro and that kind of stuff. So yeah, the music was actually still in the game's data, which is even more perplexing. They, they probably should have simply just been able to tell the game, hey, one last boss is dead. Play this one instead. I mean, yeah. it's track 153 in the US Contra NSF that we all kind of have. So who knows why it was cut? Yeah, yeah, that is strange. So moving on from Contra, we have an example from Zelda 2. Here's the main battle theme. the original version from Link No Bulkin for Famicom Disk System. Yeah, it's odd that that one track is just kind of different. Um, so we also have a few examples from Shatterhand, an awesome soundtrack. Here's the introduction to the U.S. version. And here's the introduction to the Famicom version, which is called Tokyo Shirai Soul Brain. One of the main BGM themes also differs. Uh, here's the music to Area C in the NES version.
Uh, man, and just as a quick aside, like the music to Shatterhand is really, really good. No, seriously. <laughs> it like even like just listening to the, the complexity of it, and like it, it sounds like a lot of echo effect and everything. It, there's a lot of thought in there, and a lot of I don't know what uh, exact engine they're using to program it, but there's a lot of thought and care put in there, obviously. Oh, absolutely. And like I don't want to say it's an underrated soundtrack necessarily because. Maybe just more one of those hidden gems, because I think the people who do know of it tend to love the soundtrack. Oh, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I would agree with that 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, here's the uh, Area C uh, from the Famicom version, uh, which is also great. Echoes, man, are so awesome. wondering do we have any idea why there's a completely different track of music here i mean is there something obviously different in this localization well let's see i'm not really sure like the introduction track being different makes sense because they changed the character of the game and there's some mm-hmm. different graphics and w- with a different introduction you know one is only 10 seconds long the other one's closer to 20 seconds so making two different tracks there makes total sense yeah i guess that makes sense yeah um but the area themes they're like area c again those are different levels in the different versions in the japan version it's like a carnival area uh in the <laughs> u.s version it's like a submarine level oh weird but i know right it's like it's kind of random change but yeah. um like maybe they thought like a carnival was not appropriate for american audiences i have no idea <laughs> Um, yeah, it was, you know, if there was uh, uh, ratings back then, it would, you know, carnivals, clowns. Oh man, we got it. We got to get this. You know, <laughs> so your but, mom needs to sign a permission form or something. You know, it, that doesn't mean Nintendo of America standards. But if like if you were sitting <laughs> on those tracks and you're like, hey, which one's the carnival track and which one's the submarine track? It's it's totally arbitrary, right? It's not like one's a yeah. dead ringer for other like either setting. So it seems like even if they changed level design, that there wasn't really a need to change the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could just swap those around and it w- wouldn't be any less appropriate, you know. Um, <laughs> either way, at least we ended up with more Shatterhand music, which is a good, only a good thing, I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I know we're, we're with some of these examples, we're starting to get, to get a little obscure, um, but this is a, a Werewolf the Last Warrior. Um, Steve, have you played this game before? No, I've seen ads for it. Is, didn't it come with a comic book or something like that? Uh, it might have. I don't know. I didn't actually. I never owned the game, but uh, completely unrelated to the music. So the cover uh, artwork on the cartridge uh, has like the werewolf breaking out from the cartridge. It looks ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> it's so ridiculous, yeah. But I noticed you can see some chips behind it and like in a circuit board. Um, but I looked that board up. I mean, I looked the board up to the NES game, and its real insides are not are what's on the cover. 
it, it, it's so funny because me and Patrick actually did research on this, like you know, <laughs> looking for Werewolf the Last Warriors. What tips were those? I asked probably some of you who are listening. I asked you like over the last couple of weeks, like so Werewolf the Last Warrior. What tips do you think these are? And no one really could, no one really knew. Um, some people were just saying maybe they like changed letters to make it look generic because maybe there were like copyrighted things in there. Um, I've searched each of the numbers on those things and didn't yeah. find anything. Um, so I mean, if anyone has any clue uh, what circuit board is in the background of Werewolf: The Last Warrior, uh, <laughs> please let us know. Yeah, it's it's an incredibly <laughs> stupid mystery. Uh, but like now that I know that it's not the insides of the NES cart on the cover art, like I can't help but wonder what it is. Yeah, I, I, I'm just so confused by it. And the fact that, like, a lot of people I know and really trust had no clue where it could even come from. Like, people who are, like, a lot smarter than me about this stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> Good job, uh, Werewolf, uh, The Last Warrior. Your, your, your mystery lives on. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, uh, just like Shatterhand, uh, Werewolf, The Last Warrior has a couple tracks that differ depending on if you're playing the Famicom version or the NES version. Oh, man, there's a Famicom version of this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so oh, wow. Here's the uh, US version of the final boss uh, part one and uh here's the japanese version of that track Yeah, wow, they're very different sounding themes. I definitely like the Japanese version a lot more. Um, that, that DPCM work is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> is the final boss any different? No, and it's exactly the same. So there's no obvious reason why the music was changed. Um, there's also different ending credits uh, themes to the game. So here's the ending to the NES version. And here's the Japanese ending.
In this case, I think I like the NES version more, but they're both really good. I mean, it's for me in the NES version, it's all about that opening drum fill, which is awesome. Um, this is also kind of a strange change, though, because the credits are the same in both. But oh, weird. They, yeah, so they, but they change the music anyways. But the epilogue sequence before the credits is slightly different between the two versions. But those sequences both share the same track of music. So it's like, in other words, they changed the music to a couple parts of the game that otherwise stayed the same. But for the parts that did change, they didn't bother changing the music. I, I mean, is it like that there's redemption for the, were, the, the werewolf in the Japanese version and the NES version? He's a bloodthirsty savage because that's kind of the difference that I hear between the two. Like the werewolf lives on versus the werewolf is just misunderstood. Nah, they, both, they both just kick ass. Uh, <laughs> the, have you, so the ending to the NES version is amazing. It's up there for one of like the best nes endings i think really it's it's uh it's just a single screen it's the most like pandering i I, i've seen like in localization it Uh shows the werewolf holding like an american flag in a badass pose (laughs) uh it's so good it's just the final ending screen just says the end and he's holding an american flag and it's like we need to post this here yeah yeah we'll, we'll post a link in the comments in the soundcloud comments uh um, so there there actually is one small difference between the two soundtracks overall. Even for the rest of the tracks that are identical, the Tom sample, for some reason, happens to be different in the NES and Famicom versions. Oh, weird. And I actually like the one in the NES version more. It's my preferred one to steal and use in Famitracker. Like, anything I ever do in Famitracker using Tom samples, I, I stole from Werewolf the Last Warrior. It's just, it's the best Tom sample, hands down, in the NES and Famicom library. I absolutely love it. Uh, here's a quick comparison showing the NES version of a track, followed by the Famicom version. They're both pretty good, though, actually. They are. They're both good. I yeah, just, I, I, mean, I really like the nasally sound of the U.S. Tom sample. So No, it's, it's good, yeah. So moving on, we have more examples uh, from Rygard this time. Uh, compared to its Famicom version, which is titled Argos to no Senchi, uh, there are five different tracks of music. <clears throat> we could spend a lot of time going through all the comparisons, uh, so we'll just play a couple of brief segments to get through it quickly. Yeah, for each of the examples, we'll just play a brief segment of the NES version, followed by its corresponding Famicom version. Yep, and here's the first area theme. This is the second area theme. Mm-hmm. 
This is the fifth area theme, the underground cave. This is the palace theme. And lastly, there's the wise man's theme. Uh, there's a bunch more stuff we could talk about. Uh, I should mention that before recording this episode, I reached out to the Shiz message board for help and got some amazing feedback. Uh, like I just recently learned of a ton more examples there. Uh, Air Fortress has a different ending tune in the Famicom version. This is a pretty interesting one. The original Japanese version of Superman got to include some renditions of John Williams' score, uh, while the U.S. version had that removed. To compensate, the U.S. version took out some tracks from another Chemco game, Indora no Hikari. And the list goes on. Like uh, Some other examples brought up, Yonoid, apparently, was originally a completely different game called uh, Ninja Hanamaru. <laughs> that explains how weird that game is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Explains why it was made in the first place, because it's like, yeah. yeah. Um, so that had some different tracks of music. There's uh, Phantom Fighter versus uh, Raigen Daoshi, uh, Dragon Power versus Dragon Ball. Uh, like, you can find a different track in Ice Hockey on the NES versus the FTS. So, like I said, the list uh, goes on. There's a decent number of examples that have been compiled, more than were fitting into this episode. Um, we'll post a link in our SoundCloud comments to the crowdsourced list on the shiz. Yeah, it, definitely. Huge thanks again to everyone who contributed. Uh, there's a bunch of great stuff listed out there. It's great. No, yeah, I, we really appreciate it.
Let's move on to our third category, Prototype Alternatives. These are games that have had prototype versions on Earth, which may have some different music in them. Uh, and so I kind of before said we'd be returning to Doki Doki Panic and Super Mario Bros. 2. So let's listen to the original underground theme from Doki Doki Panic. So remember, they were replacing some themes to try and make the game feel more like Mario or a Mario game. So apparently, during the development, they were considering using a cover of the underground theme from Super Mario Bros. 1 in its place. Here's what the prototype of Super Mario Bros. 2 had. That sample really does sound ugly there, though. Like, oh, that sample's so bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know if they felt that that was too obvious of a reference, or maybe Koji Kono just liked his Doki Doki Panic track more in that context. Um, I don't really know, but ultimately they went back to using it. Um, but when they did, they didn't just keep the Famicom version, the Disk System version. They did change it a little bit. They slowed the track down, uh, added more percussion that made use of the sample channel. And it also has the pulse waves using different voices at different times. Um, instead of like in the FDS version, it, they're just locked at the 75% duty cycle the whole time. So uh, we wound up with an improved version of that track. Yeah, they do an echo in there. It just sounds so much more mature. It's really nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes, again, I know we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but when we talk about, like, ports and stuff that got cut from the Japanese games, like, we, we tend to look longingly at what we didn't get in other regions. Um, but sometimes stuff was improved when it was brought oh, yeah. here. Uh, mm-hmm. So we always point to the biggest example being the Castlevania II soundtrack. Like, that's yep. the U.S. version of that soundtrack is way, way better than the Japanese FDS version. Absolutely. Um, so Batman also had a prototype version that surfaced, uh, which had different cutscenes, more story to it, actually, 
and like, like, like actually like a cohesive kind of story. This is Sunsoft Batman. Yeah, the first Batman. Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it had a different ending. Um, most of the music found in the prototype version was the same, aside from just the ending. So, uh, so let's give a uh, listen to that alternate prototype. Ending. There's a couple examples from DuckTales as well. Uh, and look, looky here, another Capcom game. <laughs> a lot of Capcom talking today. The prototype moon level, which was called Moon Surface instead of the moon, had a slower version of that theme. It's interesting because on my iPod, uh, I've had the prototype version on there, and I never knew it. And I just assumed that I had a recording of the PAL version for some reason. Oh, <laughs> I've, that's I've funny. assumed that for a very long time. And I, it's bringing this back up in this uh, episode. I went back and checked my iPod, and I was like, oh, yes, actually, I have the prototype tracks from there on there. And it's not just like I randomly have the you know the 50 hertz versions. For right. These, so. <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. Um, there's also the Transylvania level, uh, which was called Ghost House in the prototype. Like the prototype has more generic names for all the levels. Mm-hmm. Um, that also has a completely different track of music. only thing i don't like is the uh the the, the wobble on the echo uh for the wow 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 i love it 
I, it, it's so it's kind of off-putting to me. I don't know. I, I like the, the the regular Transylvania level music is so solid too. So it's like I think they're both oh, really man. good. I I love both yeah. versions. So there's there's a website that talks about the differences between the prototype and final versions of the game. Uh, we'll link to that in the SoundCloud comments. Uh, and it includes an interview with actually one of the producers of DuckTales. Um, she was, you know, she worked for Disney. And she can recall why some specific changes were made from the prototype version, like as she was personally behind some of them, like saying <laughs> like, oh, that needs to change. Uh, but she actually has no idea about the reasons for changing the music uh, and speculates that that was purely Capcom's choice. It's just interesting to hear that it was, she speculates it was Capcom's choice. Like they were making these decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess it, moving away from Capcom, which we've talked a lot about in this episode, let's talk about uh, first party. Let's talk about Dr. Mario and the original prototype version, which I guess was only found. It feels like it was a little bit ago, maybe a couple of years ago, three or four years ago. It was called Virus. There's actually a few different uh, prototype versions that have been found, and all the differences are nicely detailed on the cutting room floor, which is an amazing website. Yes. I don't know if, if, if any of our listeners will check that out, but there's some – like I've spent a lot of work hours wasting time there uh, <laughs> while they thought I was working. I, there's always something funny to find on there, oh, yeah. and the, the, the descriptions are so delightfully sarcastic too. The people over there are awesome. <laughs> anyway, uh, there are some minor differences that can be found in uh, the known tracks, you know, like uh, in like Fever, etc., etc. But it's also two completely unused tracks uh, that can be found in them, and it's pretty cool hearing them because it's like it's Hip Tanaka, and these are like unfounded, un unused Hip Tanaka tracks. So let's take a listen. Man, that, wasn't there like it wasn't like fever or one of those other things wasn't there like an alternate version of that in there too yeah there's some stuff they're all, all there's like comparisons like uh listed out on the website that we'll have linked um okay. yeah there's some stuff like some of the instruments start at the wrong volumes like there's all there's all these like little differences that you can find it's it's such a cool thing i remember when that came out i was so excited it's like wow unreleased hip tanaka content that's big 
It's mm-hmm. great. And man, I really love that second track we played there. Like when it first, that introduction section of the song ends and there's that weird, like stuttery drum, drum fill. Like they, they did a buzzing kind of drum uh, fill there. It's hard to explain, but it, it sounds no, awesome. Yeah. No, Hiptonak is a master and just like how, how like drunken it sounds almost. It just kind of like lifts forward a little bit. It's, it's just kind of great. I, I really wish those tracks had made it. Uh, there's also a prototype for Konami's monster in my pocket, but there's like too many examples to even pick from because pretty much the whole thing is different. Um, there are some tracks that are early and slash alternate versions of the tracks that wound up in the final version, but most of the rest are just completely different. So um, let's just give a quick listen to one of the prototype tracks. So for our fourth category of lost NES music, we're looking at unused music. And this would be stuff that's found hidden or unused in publicly released games. Yeah, and this category is, I think, the one that, above all else, is probably the most difficult to be exhaustive in. Um, Like a while back, I was making a bunch of NSFE soundtracks, Mm -hmm. and which I guess I should probably clarify for the listeners who might not know what that is. Um, NSF is the format for ripped NES music. But NSF doesn't contain anything like track titles, loop points, etc. You know, just be track one, track two. Um, So if you want to turn an NSF into something more like an organized album, uh, the NSFE format just allows you to take an already existing NSF and add that extra info uh, onto it. Um, And so to make them, I would play through a lot of games, you know, in their entirety so I could identify the context of each music track and game. And I actually made about like 100 of them over the course of a couple of years. And just the idea of like trying to do that for all of NSFs in existence, like to hunt down every example of a possible unused track, like, that would be insane. Yeah, but, but the good part about all of this is that unused tracks do turn up as you do this. Uh, you just pick an NSF that doesn't have an NSFE, try identifying all the tracks and see if they're in the game. That's all there is to it, right? Yeah, that's it, really. And I mean, but that also means you're open to making mistakes. Like, what if a game just has a secret area, alternate ending, or a special high score theme or something like that that you simply manage to miss while you're trying to play through the game? So, like, sometimes it's hard to be sure if something is truly unused or if it's just currently unknown. Um, that's why in the NSFEs I tag, uh, I usually label them as unknown rather than unused, just to sort of cover all my bases. So I guess in all of that 100 games, how many potentially uh, unused tracks did you find while tagging these NSFEs? It's something like like 30 or so. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, um, but when you keep in mind that like six of those are all from Beauty and the Beast, <laughs> yeah. exactly, that, that says something about how esoteric uh, these selections can get, so...
it sounds so uh, like C sixty four too, or like Sid. It's like such a Sid track. Yeah, yeah. That's so. That actually is one of the unused tracks from Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it's drone tell, which explains the C sixty four sound. And uh, yeah, it's awesome. That, so it's yeah. like I, I'm laughing, but if there's six tracks like that, I, I was. I hope I could have heard them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's actually really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we'll pick several games to share. Uh, I'd like to start with a really great track uh, that I knew, not by tagging NSFEs and playing through hundreds of games. <laughs> uh, that would be from Gimmick, which is one of, you know, we, we talk about that game, we gush about the game over and over and over again. Yes. Uh, it does have a name since it can be found in the, the sound test. It's called Strange Memories of Death, but doesn't make it into the game anywhere. It's a really great track, and I don't know if anyone's actually asked uh, Kage-san yet uh, about like if he remembers what its intended purpose was. Um, but eventually, inevitably, we're going to do an episode entirely dedicated to that soundtrack. So that's something we can perhaps find out before then. Yeah, that's something we should try to find out, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, here's another example from Maniac Mansion. We already played this song in our Maniac Mansion episode, but it's it's too good to pass up for this. Yeah, segment. we have to play it again. Yeah. yeah. So it's uh, track 13 from the NES. And I had asked David Warhol if he could remember what its planned context in the game might have been, uh, but he wasn't sure. So uh, just here's this weird, cool, unknown track, uh, unknown, unused track from Maniac Mansion. Actually, it's funny. I followed up with uh, George Sanger, and we're going to follow up with this a little bit later. I I spoke with George Sanger, Mm -hmm. but he had mentioned that it was for the Edison family. That was the original intention of that track. Oh, okay. So a different Edison theme.
So here's an interesting uh, unused track from Ninja Gaiden 2, which is done by Ryuichi Nita, also on Braveway. So hello, uh, uh, Nita-san, if you're listening, which is, you know, a phenomenal soundtrack. It kind of sounds like a battle theme, but it's like, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's half done or I'm not really sure. does sound very tecmo though like it sounds it sounds right you know yeah. with their engine it has so it weird. has that really weird sort of like a harsh vibrato on it though which sets it over mm-hmm. the edge and that makes it kind of stand out from the rest of the soundtrack so it does kind of yeah. sound like the weird sour kind of odd one out um mm-hmm. but it does that section that it builds up to at the end is very cool though yeah um so i'll continue with another sunsoft example here uh this is a kind of ominous sounding one from hebereke um if listeners aren't familiar with that game, it's one of those later Sunsoft games that uses that awesome bass sample. Uh, it was also known as Euphoria the Saga, I believe, in Europe. Um, and this is another track that also has an official title since it's included on the official OST. Uh, it's called Parallel Hebereke. It sounds like there's a there's a extra chip in there or something like it's unbelievable. Yeah, it sounds great, and it, styl- yeah. stylistically, it sounds like a lot of the other music in Hebereke is very upbeat and whimsical. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds like something from a Sunsoft Batman game. City Ransom also had a bunch of unused tracks. Uh, one clearly sounds like an ending theme, which would make sense since the game reuses the main theme during the ending credits. So it seems like it would probably be conceived in place of that. Yeah. Um, the rest are just kind of various jingles plus one other theme, which uh, sounds like maybe a shop theme, I guess. Here's a quick medley of all the unused River City Ransom tracks.
All right, so here's a weird short track from Shadowgate. Uh, it, it's speculated to have been possibly intended for the Goblin Room that was cut from the NES and the Game Boy ports. Yeah, it's this weird Goblin Room that I think is like a death trap. Like if you wind mm-hmm. up in there, there's no way out. So it's kind of like oh, wow. kind of like a cheap game over kind of situation. Oh, and there's another example here that I almost forgot to include. Uh, it's from Tetris, uh, Nintendo's version. Uh, I don't think there's too much to say about it. It's just really cool hearing a lost Nintendo song from their, you know, R&D one development group. Uh, it's very distinctly hip Tanaka sounding. Uh, so it just has that classic Nintendo sound to it. Kip Tanaka has just a way of putting a smile on my face no matter what. Like it, it, it's so distinctive and goofy and sarcastic and just I don't know. It fit. It sounds like video game music, you know, like like you know, yeah. in, in the best way possible. Like I like really meaning like yes, this is what a video game should sound like. Um, yeah, it's, it, I just love that hearing that kind of stuff. It's great. Um, so Steve, too, another thing that I didn't really know about that you told me about is uh, Final Fantasy two has some unused tracks in it yeah so years and years ago uh I, I i used to actually buy a lot of the uh the soundtracks to the final fantasy games like they used to sell them i used to be able to get them so i have like a lot of the official soundtracks there was a soundtrack that i believe was an official soundtrack called all sounds of final fantasy one and final fantasy two and it included i think four unreleased tracks these tracks are not in any NSF files or not found pretty much anywhere as far as I know. And I think you searched for that, right? Yeah. So it makes me wonder if it's the type of thing that it's not unused content found in the game files, but maybe the composer just had like the data, like it wasn't compiled and put into the game, but they had it sitting around as unused content and uh, were able to put it out on a CD release. Yeah, it, it, it's the unfortunate part of this is I think that's the only version that everyone has. So it's weirdly panned and it's in stereo, but it's still Famicom. So it's kind of a little disappointing. Uh-huh. Um, but it's still really interesting to hear, especially because one of the themes uh, gets picked up in one of the later Final Fantasy games. Yeah, we'll just play the uh, Final Fantasy 2 version here. Yeah, so that track definitely sounds familiar. Uh, I'm, I'm like just kind of partially familiar with the Final Fantasy soundtracks. I've played most of the games between one and ten, um, but just like once. So you know, like I don't know all the soundtracks like the back of my hand. What what did that get uh, repurposed as? So that is actually it would be in the World of Ruin from Final Fantasy VI, and it would be Owser's Mansion, or I guess it's I guess the track's official title is Magic House. Um, which is kind of interesting to see like something that, you know, was kind of it hit the floor and was picked up later. Um, 
so I, you know, hopefully if you are a big fan of Final Fantasy VI, you recognize that. And uh, here's a few brief examples of the uh, other unused tracks from Final Fantasy II that we mentioned. So for our final category, we're going to take a look at unreleased music. Um, we're talking about the soundtracks to games that weren't released at all, uh, but have thankfully been preserved uh, thanks to the efforts of people who put in the hard work to hunt these kind of things down uh, and you know rip the ROMs, rip the NSFs, uh, so that they're not lost to history. Um, so Steve, uh, before we were talking off podcast, and you actually brought up an unreleased game that I was completely unaware of. What was it called? Titan Warriors. Titan Warriors. And uh, what's the deal with this game? 
Well, it, it was uh, it was going to be released in 1988, but it was unreleased, and it features a soundtrack by someone who's actually really great, uh, by Harumi Fujita, who did uh, Chippendale Rescue Rangers. She did some of the tracks on uh, Mega Man Three. So this is like a, a, an interesting find, and it has like a really awesome kind of like uh, lack of a better term, frozen in time Capcom sound, like from that era of 1988. Um, it could have fit in Mega Man games. It could have fit anywhere. A lot of this music, and it's a really great soundtrack with like a really great Capcom vibe. So it's really sad that it, uh, you know we only get to hear it from unreleased kind of standpoint. I'd actually written a blog article about this five or six years ago. Um, so it's funny that we were talking about this. Uh, you know, I was very interested in trying to highlight some of the unreleased games that I could find, and I was following a couple different things on Twitter and a couple. Different sources that were publishing these. I can't really remember them at the time. So, this is one I took a great interest in. Oh, that's great. We'll listen to a couple tracks from Titan Warriors. So uh, there's a couple of fantastic unreleased NES soundtracks by Neil Baldwin. Listeners to the podcast may be familiar with his works. Uh, our first episode was all about his Magician soundtrack. Um, he also did the music to James Bond Jr. There's like the F1 Grand Prix. I'm forgetting the exact name. Uh, racing game with some awesome music in it. The Jungle Book, uh, which had some really cool sound design tricks in it. Uh, his output on the NES is just absolutely fantastic, and he's definitely one of the underrated NES composers. Um, but yeah, he he did two games with Eurocom that didn't get released: Hero Quest and Eric the Viking. Uh, Hero Quest has surfaced. There are various prototype ROMs that you can find. Uh, let's listen to one of the tracks from that now. Thank you. 
No, that's good stuff. That's great. Wow. Um, Eric the Viking, again, we talked about it a little bit in our Magician episode at the very end. But just to reiterate, this is an interesting one because this game has not surfaced. Uh, as far as we know, it's completely lost. Uh, oh. It doesn't exist. Thankfully, Neil Baldwin managed to keep the binary files for his, the soundtrack. So he dug up whatever old floppy disk or whatever they were stored on and recompiled an NSF for us. So it's incredible that we didn't lose the soundtrack. Uh, it has fantastic sound design. Um, this track here I picked has like some seagull sound effects in the music to help like build the, uh, you know, some atmosphere environment to it. It's just really cool sounding. Let's give it a listen. Again, I just think it's really crazy that if the composer himself didn't take the time to dig that up and share it with us, you know, that would be, would be gone. So <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, it just shows you that like what's sitting around on an old, like reel somewhere in some, in the back of like, you know, a recording or some old floppy and like, you know, Neil Baldwin's house or something. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like hanging out that like would change everything, you know? <laughs> you know, now that I want to think about it, like on his blog, duty cycle generator, he shares a little bit about the game, uh, but that makes me sort of want to hunt down maybe some of the other people involved and see if we could piece together maybe the history of that game a little bit more because it'd be cool to know more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So moving on, another game uh, that's kind of interesting uh, is Sunsoft Pescatory, uh, which uh, I don't even know who – like. I mean it must have been someone that we would be able to identify over there at Sunsoft who did the soundtrack to this. But it, uh, as far as I know, it's unattributed. Did, did you ever find anyone who might have done the soundtrack to Pescatory? I, I've never been able no, to. No, I don't think I have. Yeah, that'd be something interesting to ask someone from Sunsoft at some point. Or maybe someone out there knows or has a, an ability to do that. It'd yeah. be interesting to ask uh, Kage-san about yeah. that, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, only if, going by memory. Like, I didn't double-check recently. You know, maybe that information has come out more recently. I, I, but... did, I, I, I did, though. Oh. Um, <laughs> I couldn't find any information on it, too. So your memory was correct. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it's this weird little unreleased puzzle game uh, mm-hmm. from Sunsoft. So it doesn't have a lot of tracks of music, but it has some fun kind of whimsical tracks. And uh, yeah, here's one that we thought was pretty cool. (laughs) 
So, th- there's another unreleased game I was thinking about, and I, I was just like, we kind of all looked to find some unreleased things, but one of, of special interest would be Sunman. Yeah, it has an entry. You can read about it on the Lost Levels uh, website. Um, it's just an interesting game. Where it was supposed to be like a Superman uh, title, but that fell through. Is that right? Yeah, that was confirmed by the game's designer, uh, Kenji Ino. Um, I guess there was some kind of dispute because uh, it, it was under the Sunsoft uh, publishing company. They assumed that it was going to be, you know, I don't know, uh, something because uh, they had the, the Batman games that, that was going to work that way. But I guess it didn't in the end. Oh, that's interesting. And you said the, the composer to Sunman uh, was uh, Hirohiko Takeyama, who I think we mentioned before on the podcast. They did uh, Erika to Sitaro no Yumi Balkan. Yeah, see, we got to bring that game up again. <laughs> yeah, try yeah, to yeah. Pronounce it. Any excuse to bring up Erika to Sitaru, definitely. That's the uh, <laughs> Famicom soundtrack that uses the N106 sound expansion. Uh, N163. N163, thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. N106 being the old way of saying it. But yeah. I, I always forget about that. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's weird because a lot of resources still in, say L106, so it's perfectly, uh, perfectly fine. Yeah, probably some old posts that I wrote calling, <laughs> calling it that. So. You should go back and edit them. <laughs> Yeah, right. So uh, here's a track from Sunman. Yeah, so another unreleased game uh, that's worth mentioning that I think has some interesting audio is Airball. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a game, it's like a weird 3D isometric kind of thing, uh, game sort of like Solstice in a way. Okay. Um, it was going to be published by Tengen, but never came out. Uh, but it features some like streaming high quality audio samples. Oh, that's awesome. Get the Well done, boy. So, yeah, it's a weird one. Like, looking through the NSF collection, there's, like, multiple versions of the NSF. There's one, like, Track 3 Fix by Mr. Norbert. Uh, So it's just kind of one of those weird pesky things that was, I think, kind of, like, tricky to rip the audio from. And also, it just, it does use the uh, sample channel throughout the music as, like, these really over-the-top drum samples uh, that are pervasive throughout. So let's uh, give that a listen. Thank you. 
Oh yeah, man, drums are crazy in that, and like the samples is wow. Yeah, Jeez. yeah, it's it's really over the top, crazy kind of sound. Yeah. So the composer to Airball was Peter Gostola. Uh, this is a Hungarian uh, composer, actually. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, you can find some information. We'll link it here in the show notes uh, on you know the Video Game Music uh, Preservation Foundation. Uh, it talks a little bit about how he made his NES music and some of his other works. So, you know, of course, these aren't the only unreleased games that have turned up. Uh, if you're interested in this stuff and for some reason aren't already familiar with the lostlevels.org website, uh, go check it out. It's a great a compilation of a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, shared from the perspective of the people finding, finding and sharing this stuff. Um, like you said earlier about the cutting room floor, this is another website that's just easy to get lost in and read about all this cool, weird stuff. No, definitely a great resource and definitely like, you know, uh, great work considering some of the stuff would just be lost. And, you know, uh, it's great that someone's writing it all down. I, I was talking to Patrick kind of off, uh, you know, off podcast about how it's, you know, my background's kind of in uh, musicology and, you know, the idea that like there could be other symphonies and other things that have just kind of disappeared because no one wrote them down or you know people only remember what was written down and widely circulated and a lot of the composers and people that we know today aren't necessarily who was popular at the time it's we just remember who had you know great great example in classical music is ricard wagner's wife uh Cosima wagner lived into the 1920s so she was able to kind of pull the legacy of the composers she liked <laughs> you know, past uh, World War One, so just things, little things like that. Um, you know, uh, it's it's interesting to figure out what we might have lost. And video game music and video games haven't been around that long, but we've been around long enough to to, to have lost a lot. Yeah, uh, which is kind of sad. But you know, it's good that someone out there is trying to pull forward and trying to find all that stuff. So I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And like we said, of course, there's more uh, unreleased games. If we are overlooking any uh, games that had soundtracks that you really liked, um, because I haven't extensively listened to all of them. Like I haven't looked too closely at Bioforce, Ape, and some of the others. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there was a Chips Challenge game actually was ported to the NES, um, but that actually didn't have a soundtrack made, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, if there's any cool, like weird little audio things, songs you like from the unreleased games, uh, please let us know in the comments. Yeah, so I guess that wraps up the main chunk of our episode. So, Patrick, what else is going on? Um, so, I wanted to mention the launch of VG Arc. Um, that's to say, I mentioned before that we're working with this guy, Stefan, uh, from Sweden to help uh, preserve some video game history. And, you know, he's hunting down uh, interviews with classic game developers and uh, also posting some original content there as well. And my uh, interview with Alberto Gonzalez uh, was rehosted there. Oh, and cool. We also did that, that text uh, translation uh, with our David Warhol interview from our Maniac Mansion episode. Um, so those are now up on VG Arc, and we'll link that in the uh, comments here. Yeah, no, it's cool. We're really glad to be working with Stefan and that's, what he's doing is amazing. So it's, it's, it's just, it's really great. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said before too, like I was, I was self-conscious, like I was very excited to have done that interview with David Warhol and to, you know, have gotten new information about the making of Maniac Mansion uh, and his NES music. But, um, when that's sort of embedded into the middle of a podcast episode, it's not really easily accessible. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, because the podcast talks about everything, but it, you know, if it's not just the Warhol interview by itself, so yeah, exactly. So to have it in text where it's easy to quote, reference, 
find by Google searching, you know, that's that's a vast improvement. So uh, any future uh, interviews we might be doing going forward will be uh, transcribed as well. So. So next, we'll take a little look at some of the comments that we received on the last episode for the Sega Genesis. Uh, thanks for making it a success. We had a lot of listens and some good conversations, and some people reached out to me. Um, it would seem that I did okay at describing four-operator uh, FM synthesis, which <laughs> makes me happy that I, I wasn't wrong. So everyone said the best example, and this is a lot, what a lot of people told me, was using the four operators and building on them made a lot of sense to them, like having one operator, two operator to kind of see how they interact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that like you know, if you want to mess around with FM, that's probably where to start that the feedback generally seems to be that that was the best example from there so i don't know <laughs> so i'm glad it resonated with some people um so we had a couple uh, things here uh comments from curriculum crasher which is uh kevin burke who's a good friend of the podcast uh, and i thought the one uh, interesting comment he put here I'll just read it verbatim is, uh, all right. Um, a lack of accessible tools in the 1980s and uh, early 1990s kept many from experimenting with FM. If you ever tried to program a DX7 keyboard ugh, uh, with that tiny screen, and the numerous <laughs> buttons clicking, you can understand the appeal of preset patches. It's not surprising that Yuzo Koshiro was able to pioneer sound on the MD so quickly, having programmed a MUCOM for PC-88. Luckily, today we have so many VSTs and other programs with intuitive GUIs uh, to experiment with FM synthesis. So, again, and it's kind of building on our comments relating to why is there such a barrier with FM? What What's the big deal about FM? Uh, you know, so you kind of piggybacking on that, you know, why is there gems? I guess there's always been ideas to make things easier. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, that's perfect. You know, I think the DX7... Uh, Patrick, have you ever tried to experiment with a DX7 keyboard before? No, you know, I haven't, but I, I know exactly what he's talking about, though. It's, yeah. it's not like you have a modern, intuitive, graphical user interface. Mm-hmm. It's you're trying to set all of the points, like, in the small little display screen. And, like, that's really not intuitive for trying to craft these waveforms and put them together. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can understand why you'd want cheat sheets for that. And, like, it's interesting, too, because kind of piggybacking off this, I had a lot of discussions with people on Battle of the Bits and different sources uh, just lately about FM and just kind of the episode and, you know, the challenge that, uh, that FM kind of provides. And I, I just encourage anyone out there who is writing chip music to just dive in because there's we need a lot of we need a lot of good people doing FM. And I think that it's not as hard as you think it is. Um, and that's the general consensus. I, I think it's actually a lot easier. So, you know, feel free to hit me up if you want any advice. I don't know what I could provide to you, but <laughs> seriously, I, I think that we need more people doing FM because the sound is so iconic, and there's so many different chips that we could pick through. Uh, you know, whether it's the uh, we, we talked about the YM two six one two, but you know the uh, OPNA, which is a oh, it's just a fantastic sounding chip. There's a bunch of different things that uh, we can kind of all you can start writing for, and you know, it's not just about Game Boys. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and I'm hoping that people realize that. I mean, especially because I feel like, you know, w- once you kind of figure out some of the key things for Genesis or uh, you know, Mega Drive, it's actually pretty easy to write for. Um, so there's also a, a good comment left by Peg Mode. Uh, mm-hmm. In the episode, you had mentioned that you couldn't really think of a good parallel at the, uh, on the spot for all the different versions of the Genesis, you know, having different audio. Um, in the episode, I mentioned, oh, well, there's like the different models of the Game Boy and you, you know you were like oh yeah of course um mm-hmm. that's another but the, peg mode mentioned the sid which we completely oh, duh. yeah 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 so uh they said that the sid 6581 is infamous for having inconsistent filters uh in between different versions of the chip so and that can actually sometimes ruin the sound of some music yeah oh that yeah i mean it, i wish that my knowledge of those particular uh systems was a little higher but like yeah i know i definitely heard about the problems with that and i, I was looking that up yeah it's 
I can't believe it's that crazy. Yeah, both both you and I have to brush up on the C sixty four. That's something. Yeah, I mean, that's something yeah. we're gonna do inevitably. Uh, but we're we're gonna have to pull someone in uh, who really knows what they're talking about. I mean, you and I will do our research. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're gonna be talking about the C sixty four, we we can't wing it, of course. Yeah, so. there's there's no way to, to, to fake that. I I can understand C sixty four in that way. Like, <laughs> I, I mean, no, it's true. Like, yeah, there's yeah. so many people are so good at that chip and. Uh, even just listening to uh, there was a, 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 a which was a really co- good competition on Battle of the Bits. It was a Commodore based uh, uh, what's it called uh, competition. And like if you didn't do it the right way with the right sound with the right you know uh, like particular values and everything, people were just calling each other out like this is an authentic. And it's like I it sounded okay. I don't <laughs> you know like I, I don't know the difference. So uh, I, I will say that I'm complete. I'm not completely ignorant of C64, but I, I, I don't know it that well. And I don't know the VIC-20 and I, I don't know, you know, Amiga a little bit at least. Yeah. And actually I, I have done a fair amount of digging uh, through like SID files. Mm-hmm. So um, I do know like uh, some, I think I like have some pretty like esoteric examples. I can pick out like really cool sounding tracks from lesser known games. Um, so, you know, I have rolled up my sleeves and gotten in there a, a bit with the C64, but I haven't actually done any composing myself. So, you know, yeah. I, I do have to brush up on the actual parameters and all the little details of the sound. So, yeah. So it's interesting, too. I was playing a show uh, like a private party uh, recently, and I, I've done a little bit of work of playing off console, uh, you know, just files from, uh, I guess, Defilmas directly. You know, in playing like Genesis files live and uh, or Mega Drive files live, one of the interesting things I've found is that the way that Defilmask uh, creates the files must be, and, and this is and this is kind of going to how we were talking about these different consoles, different sounds. It must be thinking very similar to how the ASIC was actually built, um, because when I play the, and I literally was playing my track off every one of my crazy consoles or whatever. When I export from Defilmask Creative ROM so that I can play it off my own console. Um, it sounds exactly how I hear it in Duffel Mask off the ASIC. And I mean, and I have the VA1, I have the, the discrete YM2413, I have uh, the discrete YM3438, um, but it's, it sounds exactly how I'm hearing it on my computer uh, through Duffel Mask simulation when I played off the ASIC. So I just thought it was interesting that, uh, I mean, that must have been what was in mind. Um, and it's interesting that, like, if you like, because in my own head, if I'm designing something on, you know, for Sega Genesis or for Mega Drive, and I hear it a certain way, even know that we, I've been told over and over and over that the discrete YM two four one three, like we talked about in the last episode, might be some of the best audio. Simply because I composed it with the ASIC in mind, it doesn't sound good on that. So I thought that was an interesting consideration because if we're thinking about people who had their own dev kits when they were building things, and this is another opening up a whole other can of worms here. Mm-hmm. If we're thinking about people who had dev kits, the, the Genesis that they had or the Mega Drive that they had to play it back to them would also have that effect on the way they design their sounds. So that, that would be like maybe there was some music that was meant to be played on the Genesis 2 or Mega Drive 2, which I just thought was interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I love I mentioned it before, like I like taking uh, Game Boy Color games and playing their soundtracks back on the original Game Boy, because mm-hmm. uh, of course you couldn't play Game Boy Color games on the Game Boy, but you, you can take the GBS rips of the soundtrack and, and dump them to a ROM mm-hmm. and play them that way. And, uh, you know, that's sort of going ag- against the composer's in- intention in a way. But I feel like nine times out of ten, uh, the bigger, thicker sound of the original Game Boy does does kind of win win out. And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is the cool uh 
like I think best way to listen to it. So I, I mean, to that effect, though, did you think that a lot of the guys who were writing for Game Boy Color had a Game Boy Color that they were playing it back off of, or like I, I wonder what the the dev was actually on that? I mean, uh, it, it makes you just kind of question the process a little bit. Then maybe. Yeah, yeah, it, it probably differed from uh, dev to dev. Yeah, I have to imagine so. Yeah, I mean, based especially with what we've kind of heard about how these things were, like even what David Warhol was saying or. Alberto Gonzalez, you know, uh, there, there were many different ways to kind of put this together. And, you know, like even just reading like, you know, with the Mega Man composers where they would like put everything together, then go and like play it back. And like the slow process of doing all of that. Um, yeah. I mean, I have to imagine that, you know, especially in systems where there were different versions and stuff, there had to have been some kind of variation. Um, it's interesting, though, that you say that most of the Game Boy Color stuff sounds a little bit better on the thicker uh, regular Game Boy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I guess yeah, the last thing is kind of a shameless plug here. Um, so MAGFest is coming up, uh, you know, I guess in a couple weeks or a week or so, I guess from whenever this is released, uh, first week of uh, January. So uh, hopefully I'll see some of you guys there. I'll be there Friday and Saturday. I'm actually playing a show at the Chip Space, uh, which is like not the main stage, it's like the secondary stage, but it's still pretty cool uh, as part of Clipstream's uh showcase there so i'll be i think that's like it starts at one o'clock there's some pretty cool people there tom miller is going to be playing so if you haven't seen tom miller that's probably a really good thing to see he's i mean i've never seen him live so i'm really kind of excited about that uh and also uh nell will be playing too and nell word's like one of my personal heroes kind of a that wonky style and everything so it's gonna be kind of fun i'm gonna try to i'm trying to really debut a bunch of new nes stuff like brand new nes stuff that i haven't played for anyone so We'll see. I mean, we'll see if if it all gets done. But I I do have like two of the four tracks I want to do. So it'd be pretty cool. So if you're around, you know, come up. We'll talk a little bit about the stuff we talk about on the podcast or, you know, and feel free to, you know, challenge me to, you know, any kind of uh, debate on any of this stuff because I love talking about it. So, yeah, yeah, don't be a stranger. That's great. Yeah. Like I think I probably can't make MAGFest this year, actually. Uh, oh, it sucks. Yeah, I wanted to, but I might just stop by DC for the weekend, because I don't really live too far from the area. Um, and, you know, so maybe I'll stop by, hang out for a little bit. Uh, that, that, that would be great. So Yeah. So I guess we're moving on to name that game. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, Kevin Burke uh, correctly identified that it was from Mega Man 3, uh, and that it was the continuation of the Wily stage theme. Or the Wiley, I guess, uh, map. map theme? Yes. Yeah, it's like a map, yeah. And so we have another track picked out for this episode. Uh, see if you can name that game. So, Patrick, do you have a song of the week? Uh, yeah, I think to close out this episode, uh, I'll pick another track from Hero Quest. Uh, this is track one of the NSF. I guess you could consider it the main theme. Uh, it's actually the first piece of music by Neil Baldwin that I ever heard because I, I, I first I didn't play any of his games growing up. You know, I didn't have James Bond Jr. Uh, or Jungle Book. So just randomly digging around the NSF library, I was like, oh, there was a HeroQuest game. What's the deal with that? And because uh, I did have the HeroQuest board game, which uh, was awesome. And uh, so I remember looking up the music and just absolutely falling in love with it right away uh, because of this track right here. So uh, it's a great track. Thanks again for listening. This has been Retro Game Audio, and we'll see you all in the new year.